This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. So without any further ado, I want you to meet now a friend of mine. He has been relocated. He's in the Federal Witness Protection Program. I'm going to give you the microphone now. You just do your thing. Hello. Whatever. I don't hear no echo. No, you're speaking into the camera. All right. Thank you for the introduction, Anthony. And I guess I got to start from the beginning about my life of crime. The videotape you're hearing is from the late 70s, when a man named Robert Dussault spoke before a graduating class of the Providence Police Academy. Dussault's nickname was Deuce. He looks like someone you'd call Deuce. In the video, he's wearing big dark sunglasses. He has long sideburns and a mustache, and he chain smokes as he talks, emphasizing his words with a cigarette twirling in the air. But this, talking to this room full of cops, it wasn't Dussault's natural habitat at all. Actually, for most of his life, the cops had been the enemy. I was 14 years old. I got arrested for breaking into a filling station. That was the first contact I ever had with any law enforcement agency in my life. For the next 25 years, it was like a revolving door. I got arrested again. I got arrested again. I got arrested again. I got arrested again. I was in and out of police stations all over the country, mostly in New England and mostly in Massachusetts. Eventually, DeSalt found his way to Rhode Island. Well, I started getting involved with guys in organized crime. See, we got two governments in this country. We got the United States government and we got the government of crime. And it's big, let me tell you. Organized crime is big. I don't have to tell you, it reaches all the way to the White House. It really does. I hate to say it, but somebody has to say it. Dussault goes on like this for a while. If one thing's obvious, it's that he likes to talk. And there's one story in particular that he never gets tired of telling. Well, anyways, then we get to the famous Barnum Vault. I love to talk about the Barnum Vault. My wife don't want to even hear it no more, but I enjoy talking about it. It was unique. It was a, one, one of the scores of the century, as far as I'm concerned. It was the ultimate. I went from rags to riches. Last episode, Buddy Cianci made a dark deal that put him at the top of city government. Today, a story from the other government, the one Dussault called the government of crime. It's the biggest heist in the history of Rhode Island, the bonded vault. I'm Zach Stewart-Pontier. I'm Mark Smurley. Welcome to Crime Town. There's two objectives, I think, is to get the money and don't get caught getting the money. <laughs> we not only had the most stand-up crew, we had the toughest fucking crew, and we had the best crew, and we're all innocent. 
Raymond would sit here in like a lawn chair and he just looked like an old man with a cigar and everyone knew he was watching everything. Raymond is a good man. He never hurt. He took care of more people than he hurt. It's 1975, just seven months into Mayor Buddy Cianci's first term. And across town from City Hall, in Federal Hill, the caper of a lifetime is about to go down. In a business called Hudson Fur Storage. Fur at the time, in the 70s, huge. Every wise guy got their wife and their gumata a fur coat. <laughs> and this is where you bought it, this is where you stored it, and this is where you had it tailored when, you know, they had to have it tailored. Tim White is an investigative reporter in Providence. He co-authored a book about the bonded vault robbery called The Last Good Heist. And White says, Hudson Furs? It wasn't just for mink coats. It was actually a front for the patriarchal crime family. And hidden behind all those furs was a secret room called the bonded vault. It was just like a bank vault. It had a huge stainless steel door that weighed seven tons. And inside the bonded vault? Inside was these massive safe deposit boxes. You know, they're two feet tall by, you know, a foot and a half wide. And there was nearly 200 of them. And they were used by members of the Patriarcha crime family and their associates to store all their ill-gotten gains. And when I say loot, I mean cash from bookmaking operations, gold and silver bars, jewels, like tens of millions of dollars of stuff was in there. It didn't have a great security system. There was a button you would press and it would ring an alarm at Providence Police. That was really it. But it didn't need a good alarm system. Who would ever rob from the patriarchal crime family? That is a death sentence. Who would ever rob from the patriarchal crime family? Well, Robert Dusalt would. The guy you heard at the top of the show, talking to the police academy. August 14th, 1975, eight o'clock in the morning. Dussault and seven other wise guys pull up to Hudson Furs. Dussault strolls into the building first, wearing sunglasses and a gray check suit, carrying a briefcase, like he's a client there on business. But then, he pulls out a gun and the heist is on. The guy who ran the place, DeSalt put the gun to his nose, basically figured out it was a robbery, and the guy said, you don't know what trouble you're bringing me. You don't know. The rest of the crew races in. The employees of Hudson Furs are screaming and scared. DeSalt pulls pillowcases out of his briefcase and he forces the employees to put them over their heads. Then, the other thieves enter the vault 
and start opening the safe deposit boxes. One of the guys, he takes a crowbar, puts it against the hinge, pops it, and the door just flies off. And loot just spills out onto the ground. So they start filling these massive duffel bags with all this stuff. I mean, again, gold bar, there was so much stuff, they left behind small bills, ones and fives. They didn't even bother with it. They left it there. Loose gems, we've interviewed people who had seen it, cops and someone who's in there, they say it was up to their ankles of the stuff they left behind. So imagine what they took. One of the getaway cars that they had was so weighed down with the material that they had taken that the back bumper was practically, you know, salts. it was touching the ground, you know. The thieves race back to their hideout and split up the loot. And that's where things might have ended. The victims of the robbery were mostly mobsters. It's not like they were going to go to the police for help. The case might have remained unsolved forever. If not for one thing. Cool, good lad. I love Las Vegas. Robert Dussault again, talking to that Providence police class. He tells them that after the heist, he took his share of the loot and headed to Vegas. When I'm on a crap table, I couldn't lose. A case full of $100 bills. Man, I didn't know what to do with the money. One night, went $32,000. One night, and I got a suitcase full of money. I had 200 people watching me around his crap table. They're saying, look at this guy, he can't lose. Phenomenal. Just the luck was with me that night. But Dussault's luck was about to run out. Again, Tim White. He goes to Vegas. He finds a very expensive hooker who he ends up, I guess, falling in love with, but they end up traveling the country. But look, he, he blew through money very, very quickly. And when he ran out of the money and he wanted more of his share that was back in Rhode Island, uh, that's when the wheels started coming off. Back in Providence, the bonded vault crew was getting nervous. They knew what a big mouth Dussault had. They knew he was running out of cash and was desperate for more. So they decided they needed to shut him up. For good. In situations like this, wise guys have a few standard operating procedures. When you want to make a problem like Robert Dussault go away, you send someone who can get close, someone the target will never suspect. Someone like Dussault's best friend. His name was Chucky Flynn, and he was another one of the bonded vault thieves. They were longtime friends from the mean streets of Lowell, Massachusetts, and they really thought that this was their last good heist, the take, that's gonna set them up for life. But that wasn't how things were working out. So Chucky Flynn flies to Vegas, ready to kill his best friend. He confronts Dussault in a parking lot, but Dussault is ready. He has a sawed-off shotgun for protection. He points it at Chucky and forces him to get into his car. Picture it, the two friends, Chucky and Dussault, sitting in the car, one in the driver's seat, one in the passenger seat. Dussault keeps the shotgun trained on his old friend the entire time. But then, 
they begin to talk about the good old days, about all the years they've known each other, all the jobs they pulled. And strangely enough, these two hardened criminals both start to cry. And Dussault was able to talk his way out of it, sitting in a car with Chucky Flynn. Dussault was able to appeal to his roots in Lowell, Massachusetts, and he was able to talk his way out of that hit. So Chucky gets out of the car without killing Dussault. Chucky heads back to the hotel to meet another one of the bonded vault robbers, a guy named Joe Denise. Joe had flown to Vegas with Chucky to make sure the hit on Dussault went down, and he wasn't happy that Chucky hadn't finished the job. Here's a recording of Joe Denise on the phone from prison, talking to reporter Tim White. It's hard to hear, so we've recreated it for clarity. What was your feeling on that? Did you try to talk Chucky out of it? My feelings was I saw him, you're stupid. My feelings was I told him, you're the stupidest motherfucker that I ever met in my life, and I'm going to kill the motherfucker, I told him. And I'm going to kill the motherfucker, I told him. What were the consequences of coming back from Vegas without having done that? Serious consequences. Serious consequences. I said, Chucky, look, we're in serious fucking trouble. Chucky and Denise fly back to Providence and explain to the other bonded vault robbers that they hadn't killed Dussault. Chucky just couldn't do it. And that was a real problem. Because a few days later... I got arrested in Las Vegas. Again, Robert Dussault. FBI picked me up. I hate to say it. Took them a while, though, before they, they, they made me. Knew who I was. Knew that I was wanted from here and who knows where. They had me in a high-security cell right up front. Big light, couldn't sleep. In a couple of days, I'm dirty. Mancuso comes in. Tony Mancuso was a Rhode Island cop. He and Robert Dussault had run into each other plenty of times over the years. As he walked in, Mancuso offered Dussault a cigarette. Hey, uh, Bob, you want a cigarette? I want a cigarette. I want to go home. <laughs> I want my freedom. You know what I mean? I don't want to talk to you guys. And then Tony Mancuso looks at me right in the eyes. He says, Bob, they killed Chucky Flynn, you know. Your best friend, they killed him. Chucky Flynn, Dussault's best friend, was dead. According to Mancuso, he'd been murdered by the other bonded vault robbers. And if Dussault didn't talk and enter witness protection, he would be next. There's no trial or getting arrested or fined. You're on a hit parade. That's it, your name goes in the hat. And that's it. So Dussault spilled his guts. He told Mancuso everything he knew about the bonded vault heist. I was an enemy of the law for 25 years. So I never ratted, I never told. I'm talking now. All right, they took one of these pictures, videotaped my statement and all that. I did it because I didn't want to get killed. Coming up, Dussault gets some even more shocking news. And we get a visit from an old friend. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Before the break, Robert Dussault learned that his best friend, Chucky Flynn, had been killed. And fearing for his own life, Dussault told the cops everything he knew about the heist of the mob's secret bank, the bonded vault. So Robert Dussault and Rhode Island cop Tony Mancuso fly home to Providence. We're playing cards or something. We're bullshitting. And Tony looks at me. He says, Bob, he says, I got to tell you something. I says, yeah. Tony hits me with this. He says, Chucky Flynn isn't dead. He says, I lied. Chucky Flynn was alive and well. Mancuso had been bluffing. The oldest trick in the game. I knew it since I was a kid. It was pulled on me a hundred times before. But the circumstances were right at that time. The circumstances were right. Dussault couldn't just take back everything he told the police. It was too late. He was officially a rat. But he wasn't the only one. Police flipped another one of the thieves. Joe Denise, the guy who had gone to Vegas to kill Dussault with Chucky Flynn. Again, here's Joe Denise talking to reporter Tim White. I told Chucky Flynn from the start. I told Chucky Flynn from the start. If he rats, I'm not going to jail over this fucking motherfucker. I'm not going to jail over this fucking piece of shit, I said. I'm not going to jail over this fucking piece of shit, I said. Robert Dussault and Joe Denise gave up everybody who had been involved in the robbery, including Buddy Cianci's newly hired environmental inspector. Uh, can we go into the bonded vault? Let's start with the arrest. So where were you when you were arrested? For that, I was at my house, just come back from Disney World, me and my wife. I had bought a pool table, got it for a good deal, and I was setting it up in the basement. Guess who? It's Jerry Tillinghast. Remember him? From the last two episodes? According to Dussault, Jerry had helped pull off the biggest heist in New England history. And on January 5th, 1976, the police came knocking. All of a sudden, I hear my wife, Jerry, the fucking house is the city switch. The house is being surrounded by cops. I thought she was kidding. I don't know. So I got my son there and everything like this. Next thing I know, because the doors are open, next thing I know, they're coming down the stairs, they got shotguns, and no free. I says, hey. I started yelling at him, so get them, that's my kids here, get them fucking guns up. Don't be putting them fucking guns up, what do you want? Well, we want you, we're going to arrest you. I said, fine, put them fucking guns up, don't be scaring my kids. You know, fucking, I was off. All right. Have you seen the coverage that they afforded the Bond of Wall trial? Mm-hmm. It yeah. was incredible. Yeah. Front page story, every night. This is former prosecutor John Murphy. And on April 12, 1976, he showed up at the Providence Superior Court for the first day of the bonded vault trial. The prosecution was up first. Their case was largely based on the testimony of the cooperating witnesses, Robert Dussault and Joe Denise. They were the people who helped the state learn everything about the crime. What did you think of Dussault's testimony? He was good. He was a good witness. There was a lot going on in the trial, and uh, 
it was emotional for him, I think, particularly with Chucky Flynn. Remember, Chucky Flynn was the man who had spared Dussault's life in Las Vegas. He was Dussault's best friend. And now, here Dussault was, testifying against him in court. In the trial transcripts, you can hear Dussault making the prosecution's case. But you can also hear him pleading a different case, to Chucky. Dussault. It was either I testify or I come back here and go to prison and get killed in prison. That's the truth, Chucky. Chucky, you're a liar. Dussault. You know I'm telling the truth. For six months since I started testifying, it's been eating my guts out. Dussault promised he would always be loyal to Flynn. Reporter Tim White again. And he broke Flynn's heart when he became the key witness in this and testified against his best friend on the stand. The trial dragged on. April stretched into May, May into June, June into July. Eight hours of testimony a day, six days a week. They had to keep the air conditioning off during witness testimony so everyone could hear it, and the courtroom was a pressure cooker. Tempers flared. Jerry Tillinghast made things particularly difficult for the lead prosecutor, a guy named Al DeRobio. He worked on the case with John Murphy. Al DeRobio's father died during the trial, and Tillinghast said to him something to the effect, I hear your father died getting a blowjob. i never forget the time when his father died. We had him foaming at the fucking mouth. And it was nearly a fist fight in the, in the I heard it was wild. Yeah. You want I'm sick and tired of this defending these, uh, this, that. And I said, hey, I'm fucking sick and tired of you, you fucking asshole. I think it's in the transcripts. I said, you know, I tell you what, I'm going to get acquitted of this trial. And when I do, I'm going to dig your dead father and throw him on your fucking lawn, you fucking piece of shit. Oh, it was, it was gone. Yeah, it was gone. Yeah. And I didn't give two fucks. You know who did give two fucks? Jerry's lawyer, Paul DeMeo. There were fights in the courtroom. I'm underneath the pile of state troopers and the defendants. It's what kind of profession is this? This is not fun. So not fun that DeMeo stopped inviting his client to the courtroom. I had Jerry stay in prison most of the time. Half the time he didn't want to come himself, and we didn't need him there. I didn't need him there. Because the less time he's sitting there in front of the jury, the less he's involved. You follow me? The prosecution rested. Then it was DeMeo and the defense's turn, and they focused on presenting their clients' alibis. The day of the robbery, they were all someplace else. I was in New Hampshire when that happened. Yeah. We smile like that for like, yeah. To this day, Jerry Tillinghast maintains his innocence. And he really, really wants you to believe him. Everybody fucking does that, you know. You know, I don't get any benefit at all, you know. Fuck you. <laughs> You know, sorry. everybody I'm does sorry, that. Jerry. All right. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Well, I never asked Mr. Tillinghast what happened. I didn't want to know. It didn't matter to me. I don't care. Again, defense attorney Paul DeMeo. All I care is the case against you, presented against you properly, and that if we defend it, we defend it in, in an ethical manner, and that's what we're going to do. It. Tillinghast told me he wasn't there, presented me with his half-brother, who then introduced me to some people from New Hampshire where he was. I went to New Hampshire, I checked all those people's stories out. He was at a birthday party up there, and 
I checked it out thoroughly on Sundays and whenever I had to. I'd go down to the uh, microfilm, the Providence Journal, look up. They claimed he was playing baseball, so make sure there was a baseball game. Went thoroughly through anything my witnesses had to say, ten times more than they would have done that. You follow me? Four months after the trial began, the defense rested, and the case went to the jury. The verdict was split down the middle. Three of the defendants were guilty, sentenced to life in prison. The other three were acquitted. The difference? The alibis. Again, Prosecutor John Murphy. The men who were convicted, Chucky Flynn, John Wilmette, and Ralph Burns, both John Wilmette and Ralph Burns, we were able to break their alibis. The three who were not guilty had put in alibi evidence uh, that we couldn't break. We simply just didn't have any time to investigate them. Or The three defendants who were acquitted got to walk out. So that must have felt pretty great to them. One of the alibis they couldn't break was Jerry Tillinghast's. He got acquitted. How'd that feel? Felt honorable. Well, describe it. <laughs> so when I tell you, we opened that door. When I walked out, the court hall was fucking jammed. People were cheering for me and everything. It was unbelievable. Because this is Providence, Jerry was a hero. But not to everybody. One detective said, if I ever got out of that, he'd give you a blowjob on City Hall steps. So he was in the car. I said, hey, hey, what time you want me to sell? I got to get some tickets made up so I can tell. What time you want? Fuck you, this, that, and the other. The trial was over. Three men were in prison. But not everything added up. According to the testimony at the trial, the alleged robbers had only gotten $64,000 each in cash. So what happened to all the gold bars, the rare coins, the jewels weighing down the getaway cars so much that the bumpers dragged on the ground? None of that was ever recovered. And according to reporter Tim White, no one even really knows how much was stolen in the first place. We've interviewed uh, people, particularly in the FBI, and their estimates at the time, it was anywhere between 20 and $30 million in loot that was taken, so it was a huge grab. 20 to $30 million, gone, stolen from the mob's own bank. Where was it? Robert Dussault says he knows. When I went in there to Barnum Vault that morning, the safe, the vault, as big as this room, as high as the ceiling, the big round door, this vault, six foot thick. That door wasn't locked. That door was wide open. That door was wide open. That doesn't just happen like that. It doesn't happen like that. It wasn't hard. It was easy. It was ice cream. Why was it ice cream? Because we already had the okay from the man. You know who I mean when I say the old man, the number one, the uno, Raymond Patriarca. Boss, New England. That's right. According to Dussault, the real guy behind the heist, who stole $30 million from the mob, was the head of the mob, Raymond Patriarca. But why would Patriarca rob from his own crime family? When Raymond L.S. Patriarca was away in federal prison in Atlanta, 
he didn't feel like his soldiers were giving him his due in paying him. Again, Tim White. So what does he do to send a message? He robs from his own guys. As a matter of fact, the day the robbery was supposed to happen, they put a hold on it. They called and said, it's off. We need another 24 hours. Well, that was because Raymond Jr. had to get his shit out of there. (laughs) (laughs) After Robert Dussault entered the witness protection program, he worked at a Coors brewery for many years under an assumed name, Robert Dempsey. But old habits die hard. And all that time, he was still stealing, robbing banks and coin shops. And more than a decade after the bonded vault heist, Robert Dussault, a.k.a. Robert Dempsey, went to jail for good. He died there in 1992. Almighty God, into your hands we commend your child, Robert Dempsey. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. This is a home video of Dussault's burial. It's an open casket, and you can see him, arms crossed, in a black suit, still sporting a mustache. A minister stands over the coffin, saying a final prayer. Forgive him for all that he's done, and welcome him into your eternal home. The gravedigger closes the casket, and the minister watches as it's lowered into the ground. There's no one else there. Dussault's former best friend, Chucky Flynn, also died in prison nine years later. Chucky never forgave Dussault for betraying him and turning state's evidence, and they never reconciled. Hurt the one who treats you so good And why do we only act the way others think we should Why do we play the game Next time on Crime Town Buddy Cianci has done so well as mayor that he's already dreaming of his next move to the state house. I'm not going to leave the city of Providence. I just want to move a few blocks away up to the state house where I can do even more for Providence and the rest of the state. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you. Crime Town is me, Zach Stewart-Pontier, and Mark Smerling. We are produced by Drew Nellis, Austin Mitchell, and Mike Plunkett, with additional production by Laura Sim. We're edited by Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny. Fact-checking by Mick Rouse. This episode of Crime Town was mixed and scored by Matthew Boll. Sound design by Ted Robinson at Silver Sound. Our title track is Run to Your Mama by Goat. This episode's credit song is Why by Nick Gillette, courtesy of Jack Fleischer. Original music by John Cusiak, John Ivins, Edwin, and Beanart. Additional music by Benny Reed. Our ad music is by Matthew Boll. Additional mixing by Enoch Kim and Martin Peralta. Additional sound design by Julian Gafain. Our digital editor is Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our design director is Ale Lariu. Casting for this episode by Shelley Chinoy. 
Pete Sloan recreated the phone call with Joe Denise. Alex Bloomberg is the pod father. Working with him isn't hard. It's easy. It's ice cream. This season of Crime Town is dedicated to the memory of Zachary Malinowski. We miss you, Bill. Special thanks to Tim White at WPRI. Check out the book he co-authored with Randall Richards and Wayne Worcester called The Last Good Heist. Thanks to the Providence Journal, WPRI, Andy Chmelko, Adam Griffin, Jeff Riberty, Julia Haymans, Emily Wiedemann, Dan Barry, Mike Stanton, Lisa Newby, Paul DeMeo, Mary Murphy, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Providence is a special place, and we're honored to tell a part of its story. For a full list of credits, visit our website at crimetownshow.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Crimetown and on Facebook and Instagram at Crimetown Show. And if you're enjoying Crimetown, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. Thanks. Thanks.